Well, as we transition into our uh, teaching time together this morning, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Jody. Jody's part of our elders team here at Jericho, and she's going to read uh, our text or portions of our text from Hosea chapter 11, 12, and 13 this morning. Jody. Be reading out of Hosea. Is this on? Ephraim tells lies right and left. Not a word of Israel can be trusted. Judah, meanwhile, is no better, addicted to cheap gods. Ephraim, obsessed with God fantasies, chases ghosts and phantoms. He tells lies nonstop, soul-destroying lies. Both Ephraim and Judah made deals with Assyria and tried to get an inside track with Egypt. God is bringing charges against Israel. Jacob's children are hauled to court to be punished. In the womb that healed, Jacob got the best of his brother. But when he grew up, he tried to get the best of God. But God would not be bested. God bested him. Brought to his knees, Jacob wept and prayed. God found him at Bethel. And that's where he spoke with him. God is God of the angel armies. God revealed, God known. What are you waiting for? Return to your God. Commit yourself in love and justice. Wait for your God. Don't give up on him, ever. The businessmen engaged in wholesale fraud. They love to rip people off. E- Ephraim boasted, look, I am rich. I've made it big. And look how well I've covered my tracks. Not a hint of fraud, not a sign of sin. But not so fast. I'm God, your God, your God from the days in Egypt. I'm going to put you back to living in tents as in the old days when you worshipped in the wilderness. Are you going to repeat the life of your ancestor Jacob? He ran off guilty to Aram, then sold his soul to get ahead, and made it big through treachery and deceit. Your real identity is formed through God-sent prophets who led you out of Egypt and served as faithful pastors. As it is, Ephraim has continually and inexcusably insulted God. Now he has to pay for his life-destroying ways. His master will do it to him. But he has done it. I am still your God, the God who saved you out of Egypt. I'm the real God you've ever known. I'm the one and only God who delivers. I took care of you during the wilderness, hard times, those years when you had nothing. I took care of you, took care of all your needs, gave you everything you needed. You were spoiled. You thought you didn't need me. You forgot me. good i don't have a a child to blame this week for turning off my microphone that was my own fault excuse me thanks jody for the reading of today's passage and before i get into today's message i must begin by congratulating all of the canadians (laughs) which includes me by the way on winning the gold medal earlier this morning not only did you win gold you beat team usa on friday which in speaking to some of you is more important than winning any medal at all, apparently. (laughs) 
And the fact that I'm not wearing red does not have anything to do with bitterness or resentment. It's just the reality of my wardrobe. So I want to make sure that I'm not alienating anyone uh, here this morning. Ralph Terpstra, our moderator, was very kind to me this morning. He was very kind as the Seahawks won the Super Bowl and congratulated me. And then he came up to me this morning and smiled and said, Keith, now it's your turn to congratulate me. So I will, Ralph. Congratulations, Team Canada. Well done. The Olympics are funny. I, I don't know how, how often you guys think about this every four years or if you follow the Summer Olympics every two years, you're on this rotation. For two weeks, it just, for so many of us, it, it just overcomes our life. Like we, we're streaming things on the computer, we're staying up late, we're waking up early. Many of us woke up early this morning. We're counting medals, we're making charts with our kids, we're reading backstories, and then the games end. And most of us go back to not following any of these sports again for about three, three and a half years, right? I mean, how many of us are going to continue to follow speed skating in the biathlon? Like, probably not too many. And then three and a half years later, four years, oh, all of a sudden, we're huge fans. And and for me, the Olympics are kind of like these four-year cycles of remembering and then forgetting all over again. I'm not going to remember any of these athletes four years from now. And, and we get to the games, and I'm always amazed. Some of these athletes aren't competing anymore, and I realize, oh, they're four years older. I guess maybe they're past their prime. Now, many of us have vivid memories of the 2010 games. One, because they happened only four years ago. They were the most recent ones. And two, because they were in our backyard. They are here in Vancouver. But I will always remember the Vancouver games because my firstborn child, our son Hudson, was born during these games. And last night... Yesterday actually was Hudson's uh, four-year-old, he, he turned four, it was his birthday yesterday, even though in the evening he told me he was now four and a half. But uh, last night we decided to play the game of memory. You guys probably know this game, lots of different ways to play it. I have some of Hudson's pieces here. We have an umbrella, a uh, purple elephant, very common piece there of course, and the blue monkey, something else that you see at the local zoo as well. So we're, we're playing the game of memory and it just kind of dawns on me, now, here I am playing with my four-year-old son, the game of memory, and four years ago, I was holding him in one arm. He was six pounds at the time, six days old, and I was watching the gold medal hockey game between the U.S. and Canada. And so as I'm reminiscing about these memories, he's schooling me in the actual game of memory. But, but it, just kind of, it just kind of happens. Our lives are filled with forgetting and remembering. Our lives are kind of like the game of memory itself. Our lives are like thousands and thousands of these memory cards, these kind of fragments of things all around in our our mind. And once in a while, we might see a person, we might go to a place, we might smell a particular smell, and it draws up one of these memory cards. And then our mind tries to figure out, what is this connected to? How is this related to the past? How is this related to this person? How is this related to my feelings? And it's sort of like we go through this, this system of trying to connect the dots in our heads and match them together. And then there's other times when we're given a card, someone mentions a name, or we're, they're sharing a story, and we have no concept whatsoever. It's a complete disconnect in our lives. Most of us remember the significant things in our life because a lot of times when we were in that moment, we knew it was significant. I think that's part of why we choose to remember it. We remember the graduation ceremony and the wedding ceremony and the death in the family. And a lot of these memories are just embedded in our lives so much. But our lives are filled with all types of memories, big and small. Anything we've ever done is a memory. And sometimes we remember, and sometimes 
we forget. And sometimes our forgetfulness actually puts us in a position to make a lasting memory. I don't know if you ever, guys ever thought about this. But some of my, my favorite stories in life are the stories where someone forgot something. And that in and of itself created a memory. Like when you lock your keys in your car, right? Or when you forget to bring your passport to the border and you're stuck in the border lineup. Like you remember those stories and ironically it's because you forgot something. Or when you forget to make a security deposit after buying your first house. I actually almost did that. Thankfully, Sharon Schachter gave me a call the day it was due. My wife and I were talking about the first time that I went with her family to Big White Ski Resort in Kelowna. We weren't married at the time. I think we were engaged. I don't remember exactly. Uh, So it was kind of a big deal. The whole family, original family on her side and then me. And because uh, we weren't married yet, I was solely responsible for packing. So, you know, I'm 23 years old at the time. I can pack. And so I, I pack my things, uh, even though I usually always forget something. As a kid, it was always a belt or it was a toothbrush. But when you go on road trips with your family, that's pretty easy to fix, right? This time, though, the night before, we're going to go snowboarding. We're already up at the condo. I realized that I've forgotten my sweatpants. I have nothing to wear under my snow pants, and it's just it's going to be freezing outside. So problem, and I'm thinking, Keith, what in the world? The whole reason why you're up here is to go snowboarding. You forgot your sweatpants. No problem. My future brother-in-law loans me a pair of his sweatpants. That works fine. Later on in the day, though, we get ready to go into the hot tub, and I realize I didn't pack a swimsuit. Like, this is an even bigger problem. Once again, Melissa's brother bails me out. I'm pretty sure he never wore that swimsuit again, uh, but it was a good reminder to, to pack the things that you need. I forget things, and I'm not even someone who's all that forgetful, but it happens. It's just kind of an unavoidable thing in life. It's gotten to the point where now, as I prepare to go on vacation, I realize I'm going to forget something because it's completely inevitable. And actually, as our car leaves our home and we go to whatever holiday destination we're going to go to, I actually spend the first 10 or 15 minutes thinking with all of my energy, what have I forgotten? Because I know it's something. And then once I figure it out, I realize, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Now I can start to relax. It's actually part of the unwinding process for me. And I'm guessing you can relate You have memories of forgetting things in life. All of our lives are parts of memories. And if it weren't for the series graphic that were up here earlier, you may have even forgotten what sort of sermon series we were talking about. We've been teaching through the book of Hosea for the past seven weeks. Seven weeks. That's a long sermon series, for Jericho standards at least. And we've been in the book of Hosea this entire time. Some of you might be thinking, well, the number seven is biblically symbolic of completeness. Like, maybe our team could kind of take that symbolism and turn it into a literal application, and we could be done with this series. We've been in Hosea for a long time. And admittedly, it's been tough. It's been intense. We've had a a number of, of conversations throughout this book, and it's been heavy, it's been serious, and it just keeps on going. I was talking to Danny Ferguson, who is scheduled to preach next week. And as we were going through this book once again with with Brad as well, he made the comment um, that he kind of wished the book ended after chapter 11. And I have to agree with him. Brad spoke through a chapter 11 yesterday, and it ends on this high note. It's kind of, it's hopeful, and it's looking towards the future, and God's using this language of sort of, I'm going to do everything I can, and even though you keep failing, I'm going to make a way to to work this out, and you kind of feel like, ah, that's a lot better than some of the stuff we've been talking about before. And yet, the message just keeps on going. 
into chapter 13, 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 12 and 13, which we're going to look at today, it kind of sounds like a remember when story. It's kind of like these memory pieces get picked up again, and and Hosea uh, goes back and he draws up a picture out of Israel's history. Now, thankfully, it's a much shorter story than some of the stories that our relatives tell us on the remember when, and when, you know, an hour later, you still don't understand the point. Hosea is very clear in the point that he's trying to make. And I want to spend most of our time in, in chapter 13, but before we get there, it's important to understand some of the context in chapter 12. So in verse 2 of chapter 12, portions of this were read uh, earlier, Hosea brings up Jacob. Now Jacob is just one of those fascinating characters throughout the Bible. His story is, is dominate, it really dominates uh, the story of, of Genesis from chapter 25 on to the end of the chapter for him and his brother Esau and his wives and then his children. And for all of his deviousness, Jacob gets away with a ton in that book. If you haven't read his story, you should. It's, a, it's an incredible story. Some of the most captivating stories in the Bible. If you have read his stories, you may have come to the conclusion that Jacob is nothing more than a scheming trickster who does most everything for his own self-interest. And if this is what you think of Jacob, you have a lot in common with his brother Esau because he felt the same way. Esau got duped so bad that he lost everything that was rightfully his and it led him to a place of vowing that he would kill his brother. And the strange thing about these strange stories in Genesis is that even though there are these characters, Esau, his father-in-law, some of the surrounding peoples in the nations, the angel of God, even though there's all these characters that are offended and kind of cut down by the knees of Jacob, Jacob's never criticized in that book. And, and it can be very difficult for some of us as we read his story of trying to figure out what is going on. Because even though he's done all these things, God develops this habit of blessing him over and over again. And this often confuses some of us who search the Bible for wise morals to live by. But here in Hosea, we actually get a different picture. The finger finally gets pointed at Jacob. Maybe Hosea creates some revisionist history to make his point. Uh, Maybe he takes a little bit of liberty to better illustrate his point. I'm not sure. But he uses Jacob's story to make a point to Jacob's children. Jacob becomes Israel, and now the people of Israel, they're the ones who embody his name. And basically, Hosea is saying, you're living up to your grandfather's name and his ways. You're a group of people who are now embodying the ways of your father Jacob. You're deceivers. You're liars. You take whatever you can get. You do whatever you can to get ahead. I think this is why, as you look through chapter 12 and into chapter 13, you see Hosea jump back and forth. He talks about Jacob, and then he talks about the Israelites. And then he he goes back and forth, and it's almost like he wants them to be confused about which person and which group of people he's talking about. Maybe he does so by design, because he wants them to know that this is actually tied together. Their story is actually, uh, the story of Jacob come about again. They're pretty much living the same way that the original Israel did. But Hosea doesn't make this comparison to validate what the people are doing. He seems to do this to to kind of show this surprising glimmer of hope. Almost as if he's saying, God can still use people like you. He can take conniving snakes like you and somehow bless the world through your messed up ways. You're better 
nothing better than your grandfather was. But yet, there's still a God out there who's willing to use you. And if you're willing to let him do so, he might just be able to bless the world through you still. But you've got to do something about it because time is running out. I think this is why in verse 6 of chapter 12, there's some highlights here of the dishonest practices of Israel. In verse 6, they are told to return to their God. In verse 7, Hosea highlights some of the things that they do that are dishonest. They tip the weighing scales to pad their wallets. They smile every time they can think of a way of defrauding their next customer. They brag about their wealth even though they get their money by being shady. And even though it seems crazy to think this way, the people have the audacity to think that their riches prove that they are without fault. The people of Israel are deceivers. And because they're such accomplished deceivers, they don't realize that they deceive themselves as much as they deceive others. They're a group of Jacobs, and they appear to be quite comfortable in their own skin. But Hosea's message in chapter 12 should actually cause them to feel anything but comfortable. The final verse of the chapter announces that God will repay Israel for her contempt. The time is coming when she'll have to make amends. It's yet another reminder to Hosea's listeners and to us as well that we must repent of our wrongdoings. It's never too late to come to your senses until it's too late and time is running out. And as we move from chapter 12 into chapter 13, you'll notice that Hosea pauses this story, this kind of historical retelling of Jacob, to point out Israel's sin quite directly. Hosea says, well, Israel, you've worshipped other gods. You've created these idols, you've offered sacrifice, and your sin just keeps growing more and more again. And by doing this, Hosea is pointing out that Israel has actually forfeited the covenant. She made a covenant as a group of people to God, and by doing these things, she's basically said, I'm done with it. God, I'm done with you. I'm not living up to my end of the bargain. I'm not living up to what I've committed to you, and I'm showing no remorse for any of these things. He compares the people to things that are visible for a moment, but then quickly disappear. Because the warning in the book of Deuteronomy for if the people ever do this, if they forget him is that they will be destroyed. And now Hosea looks for these different metaphors to compare Israel to. He says, you're like morning mist. You're like early dew. You're like swirling chaff. You're like escaping smoke. Present for a moment, but preparing for an exit. When you think about it in the context of Hosea's book, it's actually quite pleasant warnings. Because at the end of this chapter, we get much more gruesome warnings. We get very, very difficult language that describes what's going to happen and what will happen as the Israelites suffer the fate that the Assyrians will hand them. But in between these warnings is a return back to this historical story. So Hosea, he's talked to us about Jacob. He's compared them to Israel. Now he said, hey, Israel, watch out. This is what's going to happen to you. It's another doom and gloom message. And then he comes back again, almost like he pulls out another memory card and says, let me try a different approach. Let me tell you another story to help you get back on track. And he talks about God once again. God as the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The namesake of these people. And it's within these verses that we're going to focus the rest of our teaching time together. Hosea desperately tries to remind the people of their history. So he goes back to the story, and this time he talks about Egypt. He talks about Jacob's ancestors who are down in Egypt and who are suffering bondage from the Egyptians. They're enslaved. If you look at verses 4 and 5 out of chapter 13. We hear the word of the Lord say, I have been the Lord your God. 
ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. Basically, we learn again that no matter what the obstacle is, God provides for the people. He saves them from the Egyptians. He carries them literally through the Red Sea. And then then they're in the hot sun in the desert with nothing to eat. He actually gives them food there as well. But God's provision comes with an unexpected cost. Even though God provides for the people over and over again, the people forget him. Listen to verse 6. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Hosea uses a very simple when-then explanation. There's three parts. When God fed them, then they became satisfied. When they were satisfied, then they became proud. When they were proud, then they forgot God. Their satisfaction produces pride, and their pride strikes them with amnesia. They don't remember how their needs were met. They look at the memory card and they think, I have no idea how any of this is connected to God. And if we had one verse to guess why these people have forgotten God, it's based on the snowball effect of no longer being in need. They forget because they're proud, and they're proud because they're no longer hungry. There's no longer an immediate need. Now, it's unusual for people to be envious of hunger. I can think of lots of times when I've heard people complain about needing food, being hungry, but it's pretty rare to hear someone complain about having too much food to eat. There's nothing that I like about having an empty stomach. I start to feel uncomfortable. Uh, My stomach starts to growl. It does those little somersaults. I get the headache, and, and then I become very irritable. And that's about one after, that's like when I've delayed my meal by an hour, right? I'm like most guys when that happens. What's the solution? Feed him, right? That's, that's what my mom says about my dad and what my sister-in-law says about my brother and what my wife says about me. If, you, if they're irritable, if they're upset, you just give them food. How can hunger be a good thing? Well, for Israel, hunger creates a need. It creates a need for God to fill. Hunger stirs up action. When we're hungry, we do something about it. Hunger is an opportunity to depend on God. And while hunger in this instance is specifically tied to a lack of food, we know that hunger extends to other needs in our lives. But when hunger is no longer a need, it can be easy to forget. Because any need that we have in our life demands attention. Our bodies ask for food. Our loneliness asks for friendship. Our pain asks for healing. Our desperation forces us to take action. If we didn't take action, probably wouldn't be all that desperate. And for those of us who believe in the power and the mercy of a God who knows and loves us, this is the time when we cry out to him. This is the time when we cry out and pray for help. Just like the Israelites did when they were in Egypt, suffering. Just like they did while they were hungry in the wilderness. Remember, they complained, they whined, they wanted food. But when the urgency is gone, we have a way of forgetting all over again. It doesn't seem to matter if our need is met by some unmistakable act of God. Many of us have had those instances where we say, I know for sure that God provided for me in this time. Then other times, we don't quite know how it happened. Some of us might use different words to describe it. A coincidence just kind of happened. Who knows? 
karma, depending on your faith background and people you interact with, you might use different words. But whether it was a miracle of God or just some sort of event, we find a way to forget either time. And then there's the condition of pride that's also included in this passage. And even though pride is condemned over and over in Scripture, even though humility is a trait that people are encouraged to uphold, it's overshadowed here by the greater folly of forgetting God. Pride is the cause for forgetfulness, but the act of forgetting is a much more serious crime in this story. And as we saw back in chapter 4 in the book of Hosea, the chief complaint that God has against his people is that they no longer acknowledge him. They lack knowledge. They have somehow forgotten. They are no longer relating. Even though God knows them, the people do not know God. Whether or not it's intentional, they have forgotten him. And then here again in chapter 13, verse 4, we hear God say that he is the Lord who brought the people out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but him, no Savior but him. Again, we have that understanding of knowledge being so important and an active memory. One of the most widely known Proverbs states that pride goes before a fall. But I can't help but wonder if the fall is not partly due to forgetting where to step. We tend to forget Our lives reflect this. It's also reflected by the number of times we're told in the Bible to remember and not to forget. Over and over and over again, we read this. We've read it all throughout Hosea. We read it all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus tells us to remember in the New Testament. I'm almost annoyed by how often we're told not to forget and told to remember. How many times do we really need to be warned not to forget? How many times do we have to be told to remember? The answer, apparently, is more than we think. And the reason why I think we need these reminders is an equally annoying reason. It's actually pure irony. We need to be reminded because we forget that we're forgetful. This isn't just a a play on words. It's the way things are. It's the way our lives are. We forget that we're forgetful. This is why we take extreme measures, silly measures when you think about it, To remember something that we cannot afford to forget. We make lists. We email ourselves. I always do that. Some of you know that. You talk to me about something, a question you have, and I'll pull out my phone and I'll email myself. Because otherwise, I'm going to forget. We write notes on our hands. This was the thing to do when I was in school. I had black marker all over. Not the inside. Hopefully you're washing your hands, right? No, the outside. You find these special spots that they're they're just going to be perfect. They'll sit there right there. And they hit you every time you do anything with your hands. We mark up our day planners, uh, we use calendars, and if we're really, really serious, we ask other people. Like, how many times during the day or the week do we say, hey, don't let me forget to, or we tell someone else, please, 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 help me remember to do this. And you know what? These strategies work really well. Like, if you've got an email reminder that you can flag, you've got a list, you've got it on your hand, and your friends remind you, chances are you're in good shape that you are not going to forget. But you know what doesn't work? Trying to remember. This is almost always a recipe for forgetting. I can't tell you how many times during the week I think of something that I need to do, something that I want to do, and I don't do anything to help me remember. I just tell myself, Keith, you need to remember to do this. And then that other part of my brain says, you know what, maybe you should write that down. Maybe you should email yourself in your mind. And you know what I say? No, I won't forget. I'm sure I'll remember. 
in some odd way, pride is actually connected to forgetfulness. If forgetting something that I really care, care about is a possibility, I have no shame in taking any action possible to help me remember. When I forget, it's usually because I assume that I'll remember. Which is why it actually makes sense that the Israelite, they forget. And their forgetfulness doesn't just happen. It's prompted by their pride. And we're really no different at all. We forget that we're forgetful. And if forgetfulness is the key problem in this story, if forgetting God is God's greatest complaint against his people, then wouldn't we do anything possible, everything possible to help ourselves remember? Assuming, of course, that you care about honoring God. Assuming that you want to listen to God. Assuming that you take his word and you take that relationship seriously. If you don't care about these things, then you probably don't care about forgetting God. It's really not all that important to you. But if you do care about obeying God, wouldn't you want to do everything possible to remember him? You would think that we would. You would think the people who are serious about obeying God would do this, but many of us still don't do it. It's our nature to take the path of least resistance. Instead of creating some sort of plan, instead of creating some strategic reminders and having other people help us remember, we're inclined to just tell ourselves to remember. We're inclined to assume that we will just remember. And whenever we assume that we'll remember, we fool ourselves. Because we forget that we're forgetful. And we're not the only ones. People have been forgetting and then remembering God for as long as people have been living on this earth. The words from Hosea's book are insightful, but really they're nothing new. But what can be new is your approach. What can be new is how you choose to remember Instead of assuming that you'll remember, you can embrace the fact that you forget that you're forgetful and then do something about it. We run the risk of forgetting, so we would be wise to create a plan for remembering. So, make a plan. Your plan doesn't have to be the same as my plan. You might find that a certain strategy for remembering God works better for you than it does for me, and that's totally fine. But let me make one suggestion that comes from this text, at least as I read it. We saw a dangerous progression in verse 6. Remember what happens when God cares for the people in the desert. The people forget because they're proud, and they're proud because they're satisfied. Developing a plan that uses the opposite approach is one of the best ways to remember God. We remember when we're humble, and we become humble when we're hungry. We remember when we're humble, And we become humble when we're hungry. So as you think of a plan for remembering God, consider what you can do to make yourselves hungry. The Israelites found themselves hungry for food. And they were humbled as they relied upon God for that food. So what situation can you put yourself in that will force you to be hungry? That will force you to depend on God? Now some of you might be thinking, well, fasting... Fasting's a logical response to this question. This literally makes us hungry. It makes us hungry for food, right? Depending on your experiences with fasting, sometimes that may or may not necessarily make you hungry for God. I have found personally that my hunger for food often helps me hunger for God as well. For years, I didn't fast. I took like a decade off. I'm not really sure why. I don't know if I just sort of thought like, 
I didn't need it. It wasn't necessary. I wouldn't forget. Probably I just didn't want to do it. But I've begun to fast from time to time again. And I find that when my stomach is hungry, I remember why it's hungry. It's hungry because I'm trying to remember something. It's hungry because I'm trying to be intentional about praying for someone or some particular thing. Fasting helps me remember. Now, you don't have to fast. You don't have to do anything. You can choose to do whatever you want. But every single one of us is forgetful. So you'd be wise to make some sort of plan to help you remember. This past Friday evening, I got to uh, attend an evening of worship and remembrance in Vancouver at Regent College. I was there because our own Jared Crosley was there. He completed his integrative project in the arts and theology, and a number of us were there celebrating with him and participating in that time of worship. And so I listened as he and his friends played the music that he had composed, and then I listened again as he explained what he had done and what he had learned through this process. And one of the things that struck me was a description of the church that he read from a writer named Miroslav Wolf. Wolf describes the church as a community of memory. And as soon as he said that, it resonated with me. The church is a community of memory. What do we do? We remember. We remember what God has done for us. And we remember what we're called to do. Our challenge is that we forget that we're forgetful. And if we have any hope of becoming this community of memory that we're called to be, I think we better make a good plan for how we're going to remember. There's prayer teams that are going to be available at the back if you want to talk to someone about what you've heard, if you want to ask for, for prayer. And I encourage you to pray and to ask and say, God, how can I remember? What do you want me to remember? What do I need to do to be faithful to you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of your word. We thank you for the many ways that you use people and other instances to remind us of your faithfulness. God, I pray that we would embrace the fact that we're forgetful people and that we would be bold enough to ask people for help, to make plans in our life, so that we would never forget your graciousness to us and what you have called us to do. And so, Lord, as we sing these songs, as we listen to your Spirit, as we pray with each other, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us and direct us and really inspire us, Lord. When we remember you, it is good for our lives because you are life. And so, Lord, we surrender ourselves to what you would speak to us now during our time of continued worship. Amen.